If you've not been on Sunday nights in a while, we're looking at 1 John. We're in chapter 4, then we'll go to 2 John eventually and 3 John, which are briefer books. Uh, and it's sort of like being a physician. People specialize and specialize. There's people who actually their expertise of scholarship is in Johannine literature, which would be uh, the Gospel of John and these uh, letters written by the apostle, or at least by, written by his community. Some of them might argue. I would say they're all written by the apostle. To set a little historical background again, you remember we're towards the end of the first century. We do not have an identification of our author, though it, it, it seems as if it's the same writer of the gospel and the writer of the second and third uh, letter written by John the apostle. And we looked at a church tradition, and there was no other author put forth other than John the Apostle, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee. And he's writing to the Asian community, probably around Ephesus, and what has happened is this. In his absence, there has crept into the church, and some now have gone out from the church, some heretical teaching, uh, some heretics. And what they were saying is this, that you were saved not by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Don't worry about that. You're saved by having a special knowledge. It's a mystery. And of course, they feel as if they have the mystery. They think they have that special knowledge. And what we can say something about that mystery, that special knowledge, is at least this knowledge or this heresy taught that Jesus, the fleshy, Rabbi, Jesus in the flesh was not the Christ. At least they would argue perhaps the Spirit descended upon him at his baptism, uh, but for certainly the Spirit, the Christ, could not be crucified. And so that Spirit of the Christ ascended, ascended up to heaven before the crucifixion. And so they would de emphasize the crucifixion and resurrection. They would emphasize having this mysterious knowledge, this special knowledge, this mystery that they themselves have taught, and now they have left the church. What's interesting as you go through 1 John is you find a, a lot of reflection from the Gospel of John, the same vocabulary, the same thought structure, the same teaching. It sounds so awfully, awfully familiar. Well, we find ourselves in chapter 4. And because there's these heretics out there, and some of the church are falling into this heresy, then John gives them a warning in verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Check and see, before you sign up and before you believe, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. In fact, Jesus himself in Matthew 7 warns us about these false prophets that will be out there. Sometimes there was a tendency in the early church, if there was any spiritual gift at speaking in tongues, having prophecy, if there was anything that might indicate that the person was blessed by the Spirit or indwelt by the Spirit, that they would believe the claims of the teacher despite the fact that the teaching didn't sound like the Apostle John or, for that matter, the Apostle Peter or Jesus or any of the disciples. Rather, it was bringing in new thought and new teaching into the church. And so they're told, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, 
but test the spirits to see whether they're from God because many false prophets have gone out from us. Turn over to 2 John. It'll be just a few pages in the right of your Bible. 2 John, verse 7. In 2 John 7, we read, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Now look back over at 1 John 4, 1, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. You see the similar structure there in verse 7? For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, this is a deceiver and the Antichrist. So there you have it. These deceivers, now back to chapter 4, these deceivers had left the church, gone out into the world. Some of the church were following them, but the core of their heresy was the teaching that this Jesus, this rabbi, was not the Christ, at least not in the flesh. And you know, if John the Apostle taught anything, he taught us John the Gospel, chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The the fact that Jesus was all human was important to John. It wasn't a low Christology. He certainly believed he was sharing in the glory. In fact, he has him in, as co-creator with God in chapter 1, but that does not negate the fact that he also was flesh and he actually dwelt among us. Well, beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirit. So the question that arises, obvious, is how do we test the spirit? How do we know whether or not the spirit is from God or whether it is a spirit of the Antichrist? Uh, I've told you a couple of times now, if you're new tonight, the word Antichrist is only used in these Johannine letters. So when you play Bible trivia and they says the passage is Antichrist, you say it's got to be first or second John. You pick one of the Johannine epistles as your answer. Well, how do you test such people? Let's look at verse two. By this... Okay, John, I'll test the spirit. How do I test the spirit to see if they're heretics or orthodox? The apostles teaching or a pseudo teaching? By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. There it is. This community. Now, I would say that is true. But we also look at other things by which to test false teachers. But you have to know this is contextualized to this community. In this community, the heretics were saying that the one named Jesus might have been the Christ for a moment, but the real Christ would never fully come in the flesh. So if they are teaching that God has not come in the flesh, that the word has not become flesh and dwelt among us, then they are false teachers. Well, I would put it this way. Uh, he's exactly right, but if I brought in Paul, uh, I would say a, a better way to say it is this. This community, that was exactly the right way to say it, but in our case, in all circumstances, if you want to test a heresy, always look at what they teach about Jesus. That's another way to say it. Always look at what they teach about Jesus. Don't talk to them about anything else. You go and ask them about their, the formal word would be Christology. You find out what they teach about the Christ or about Jesus. That will give you their answer. So if you think about it, 
the Jehovah Witnesses don't get Jesus just right, do they? The, the Mormons don't get Jesus just right, do they? You see what I'm doing? So in every case where there's false teaching, if you will go and ask, well, who was Jesus? You know, and see who they think Jesus was and about his earthly ministry, about his pre-existence, about his uniqueness as the only begotten Son of God, about his crucifixion, what happened there, and his resurrection. Do they have good uh, understanding of how God acted through Jesus, how he was God? You, can, you, can, you just go to their Christology and ask them, tell me what you believe about Jesus. And once you understand what someone believes about Jesus, I would say 99.9% .9 of the time, you can rule him or her in or out as orthodox or heterodox. You can decide by what they are teaching about Jesus. And that's what John says. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus, earthly Jesus, is the Christos, has come actually in the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us is from God. And every spirit, notice, that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. If we were to ask the Apostle Paul, how could we check and see if someone uh, is actually teaching of, spirit, of the Spirit of God or teaching the truth of God, he might have said it this way in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Paul says that nobody can utter the confession, Jesus is Lord, except by the inspiration of the Spirit. So there you have John saying, I want to get, get rid of the Gnostics who were saying that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. What happens with that kind of teaching is you have a separation of the body and the spirit and only spirit's important. And then you come to the conclusion, what I do with my body, therefore, doesn't matter. And for John, it was very important what we do with our bodies because Christ came in the body and he had a bodily resurrection. You see that? Well, Paul would say it this way in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Nobody can make the confession that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. Now, what he's trying to say there is no one can say it truthfully and sincerely. Of course, you could utter it with your mouth. Uh, as Jesus said, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, and I will say, you never knew me. Depart from me. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Jesus himself said, everybody who calls him Lord will not enter the kingdom of God. It's not a verbal uh, commitment, but rather a true commitment that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is Lord. So Paul and John both are saying, if someone's out there teaching Go immediately to what they teach about the Christ. Do they teach that he, came in the, that he came in the flesh? Do they teach that his crucifixion and resurrection is a unique act of God? Do they teach that he is the Lord of the cosmos, co-creator with God? So Jesus is Lord, was incompatible with ancient heresies, and is incompatible with modern heresies. So always go to what somebody teaches about Jesus, and you'll find out who who they are. Jesus is Lord. Well, let's, let's look at it another way. If, if we were to go through the whole uh, Johannine book, what we've seen is this. He tells us, first of all, we got to believe right. 
If we're, we're going to test the spirit or if we're going to see if someone's really, really following Christ, we're going to see if they believe right. Secondly, do they love right? And thirdly, do they walk right? You've seen that throughout this book. Do they believe right that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? that God acted in his death and in his resurrection. Do they believe right? We're going to see it again tonight. We've already seen it. He repeats his themes. Are we loving right? How can you love God whom you have not? How can you say you love God whom you have not seen if you do not love your brother whom you have seen? Um, are, you, are we loving right? Do we believe right? Are we loving right? And then are we walking right? Well, you might but if you don't like that outline, I'll say it another way. Faith, love, and righteousness. Some of you like just three words. Do they have the right belief? Faith. Are they loving right? Love. And righteousness, are they obeying the commandments of God? Faith, love, and righteousness, if you look at the whole book of 1 John, are the three tests if someone is following the right teaching of whether or not he is actually following God. Well, he tells us that we are, that greater is the one who's in us. The Spirit of God is greater, the one who is in us, and the one who rules the world, which, of course, is the power of darkness. Verse 5, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. They are from the world. They speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. To them. And then he says in verse 6, but we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Well, you might put it another way. Now he's saying, if you want a twofold outline, what are the confessions they make and how do they respond to the message of the church? What are the confessions they make and how do they respond to the confessions of the church? Have you ever noticed that when a heretical teaching starts, a teaching that's off base, it most often starts outside the church? It doesn't start, you know, the, the important thing about community is we have a community hermeneutic. Now, the Sunday night crowd is, is a very bright crowd, so we can use that word. It means interpretation. So I, I know you want more on Sunday nights. That's why you're here. We have a community interpretation. You understand? Uh, so that you can't just go out and read Scripture yourself and come back and say, this is what it says. You've got to bring it back to the community. It has to be interpreted within the community of faith, which means not just this community, but the community, ancient, right? All the way from the apostles, all the way till now, we must read it in community. So what one confesses, but secondly, how do they respond to the message of the church? 4 verse 6, these heretics are not listening to us. Uh, the one who knows God listens to the church. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. What are their responses? Well, verse 7 through 12. So we said, believe right, love right, and walk right. He told us last week to keep the commandments, but, but now we're going to go back to the loving right. Verses 7 through 12, God's love and our love. So believe right. He covered that above. Now, love right. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. 
And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And the one who does not love does, know, does not know God, for God is love. God is love. The beginning of love is to be found in the love shown by God. Now, we have three things that, that John says about the essence of God uh, throughout his work. First of all, he tells us that God is love. If you pick something that describes God as much as anything, that is a good description, that God is a force of love. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, he told us God is light. God is love. God is light. So he tells us, and then he tells us in John 4, 24, the gospel, John 4, 24, that God is spirit. So there's three direct descriptions of the essence of God by John. God is love, God is light, and God is spirit. Now, interestingly enough, there is out there in our culture this idea that all that matters are these verses. And uh, you might be listening to pop TV in the afternoon, but someone will jump up and say, if anybody calls anything wrong, they will jump up and say, well, don't you know that God is love? They'll even quote this scripture, that God is love. Let us love one another. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And all of that's true. But the oddity about misusing this passage with this overarching ethic of love is that wording comes in the most morally rigorous book in the New Testament where it says this is the way we know that we're his if we keep his commandments. You see what I'm saying? You can't just simply argue God is love and that's all that matters because in the context of this whole letter, he tells us that indeed, turn back to chapter two, verse three. And by this, we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. He says that here, he says that in 324 and 52 in the gospel of John 14, the gospel of John chapter 15. So John, part of his theology is commandment keeping. By this, we know we have come to know him You'll know it, uh, the proof's in the pudding, if you keep his commandments. Now back to chapter 4. So when someone says, beloved, let us love one another, love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. The next time you hear that kind of argument, you say, yes, that's true, but let me remind you that that, that comes from a book where we are told because the Spirit of God is in us and we have the love of God that we will be commandment keepers. It is right love, but it is also right walk or it is also righteousness. So we have to believe right and we have to love right. God is all loving, but God is equally, God is light, one five here. God in him, God is light and in him there is what? No darkness at all. God is morally righteous. They don't stand in contrast. God's righteousness and God's love are one and the same. They're flip sides of, of the same coin. Verse 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. Does that verse sound familiar to you? Let's look at it again, verse 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, 
that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. That's about as close to John 3.16 as you get, isn't it? Same writer, same idea, that God's, the cross is evidence of God's love. The love of God was manifested in us. God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. He died for us that we might live. Over and over again in this particular letter is the idea that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was the payment for our sins. He uses the big word propitiation. The payment for our sins, Jesus accomplished for us what we could not accomplish and that he paid for our sins that we could be free. The debt has been paid. And this is love. Not that we love God. But he loved us and sent his son to be the payment, the propitiation for our sins. That is the ultimate story of love. That God so loved you and me, the world, that he sent his son to die in our place. If you ever really want to understand the love of God, go immediately to the cross, to Calvary, and there you will see exactly how much God loves you. God is love, and how is his love made manifest? He sent his son to die in our place. Sometimes we have heard that story so often, so flippantly, that we forget, even those of us who are parents, what it would take for you to sacrifice your child on behalf of others that you loved. Mankind, humankind was rebellious, but God receives his own wrath in the person of Jesus and pays for our sin. At the center of Christian theology is that God has loved us, and yet God is righteous, and God receives his own wrath against our sin in the person of Jesus, and we can confess our sins and be forgiven our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. How are we to love each other as a community of faith, even as God has loved us? Just so we are to love one another. Verse 12. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. It, it is probably true. Notice what he says very carefully in verse 12. No one has beheld God at any time. I, I will give you a little hint. Often, when someone is reaching into heresy or false teaching, they back that up by claiming they've had a mystical experience. As God talked to me, I had a vision, I had a dream, I uttered in a, another sort of language. I believe in tongues. I'm not making fun of the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. But... Because you can't know, you can't question, they take you to a vision 
And in that vision, uh, they tell you what God has told them. Somebody in the Johannine community, some of these false teachers who've gone out from the church, they have said they've had a vision. And he's telling them, no one has seen God at any time. That is reserved for the second coming, the parousia, the coming of our Christ. Then we shall all behold him, but not until then. And don't claim to have the visions because no one has beheld God in just that way. Someone starts this way. You know, I had a vision. Mormonism starts that way. I had a divine experience. And in this divine experience, God told me, and they codify, write down what God told them. And this is what I believe. The problem with that is we measure truth by Scripture, not by someone's vision. Do you see that? We measure truth by whether or not the apostles have taught it in the revealed and sacred Word of God, not by someone's spiritual experience. So when someone starts telling you that God has told them, what they're really, let me put in plain English what they're telling you. This is what I want to do, and I'm going to say God's on my side, and therefore you can't argue with me. That's the essence. That's boiling down what they're saying. That I want to believe this. I want to do this. This is my behavior. And I want you to notice how often when someone starts that sentence, God has told me to, often it'll even be a sin they want to commit. God has told me in this case, it's okay. As if somehow the revelation, the vision they had is indeed God is telling them to, and then they finish the sentence with something they know is an act of disobedience. But after all, if they've had a vision and comfort and dream from God, what is the church to question their dream? John says, you need to question it. Verse 12, no one has beheld God any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. That's how you know if you love, not by your visions, but rather by the fact that you love, that you have the spirit of God abiding in you. His love is perfected indeed in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. This is the way we know that we abide in him and he abides in us because we have the spirit of God dwelling in us. One cannot simply say because a person professes true belief or loves his fellow man or claims charismatic gifts, it is a combination of all of these things. The indwelling of the spirit of God that says, indeed, we are a child of God. Verse 14, and we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. You remember how he started out the book way back when? He said that he had observed all of these things that he had heard and he had seen and he had experienced. Turn back to chapter 1. What was from the beginning? Chapter 1, verse 1. What we have heard, what we have seen, what will be held what we have handled concerning the word of life. I saw it, I beheld it, I heard it, I touched it. Now back to chapter four, where he tells us, we have beheld, that same word he uses in the first chapter. We have beheld and we bear witness to the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. I was there, I saw him. I went fishing with him. I broke bread with him. 
I was there with him in the upper room. He washed my feet. I know and bear witness the Father, John is saying, has sent the Son to be what? The Savior of the lost and dying world. Because, verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Again, Christology, who do you say that Jesus is? Verse 16. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us that we have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Now, John wants you to have freedom from your sin. And John does not want you to fear Judgment Day. He doesn't want you to approach the coming of Jesus with fear and apprehension because he wants you to know that Jesus has died for your sins and therefore there is no need to fear. Verse 17, we have confidence in the day of judgment, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. Verse 17, look back at chapter 2 and verse 6. He says something similar there. The one who says he abides with him ought also himself to walk in the same manner that he walked. We walk in Christ. Now back to chapter 4. Our confidence on the day of judgment is not who we are, but who he is. When someone is struggling with assurance of her salvation, I find often that that struggle is because she's trying to make it about herself. Or he's trying to make it about himself. I'm not sure I'm good enough. You can stop right there and say, well, I'm sure you're not good enough. But he, but he, our confidence on judgment day is not based on who we are, but rather it is his accomplishment on Calvary and our response of faith, which then leads to obedience. And when we fail, we have an intercessor, John, has already told us. Well, look at verse 18. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, the one who fears is not perfected in love. And then verse 19. We love because he first loved us. That sounds like Paul a little bit, doesn't it? That while we were yet sinners, Paul tells us in Romans, that Christ died for us. Isn't that an amazing thing that God loved you first? We love because he first loved us. God loves you. But, verse 20, back to what he says over and over again. If someone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, then you can know that indeed He's not speaking the truth. Look back at chapter 3, verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. He, he tells us throughout this whole section that we are to love our brother, not the way that Cain treated Abel, chapter 3, verse 11. If someone says, back to chapter 4, verse 20, I love God, and yet they hate their brother, he is a liar. 
The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. For anyone who loves to hold the old grudges, for anyone who harbors resent and anger, these ought to be startling verses. Don't you want freedom from that? No matter what he did or she did. If we love God, it doesn't say we have to like him, but we have to love him. We have to love them. If you're having trouble loving somebody, you pray for him. You pray for her. You ask God to bring blessings to his life and her life. It'll happen all of a sudden. You act as if it's so, it becomes so. You cannot ask God to bless the ex-spouse that you despise. Eventually, somewhere in the middle of that prayer, you'll begin to love and be Forgiving as God has forgiven you. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should also love his brother. So, how do we know if the spirits are right? Three words. Faith. Do we believe the right thing? Love. Do we love rightly? Do we love both God and our brother, John would say? And then finally, righteousness. Are we walking right? Are we keeping the commandment? That's the way you know. Because every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God the Father. Always ask, tell me what your church believes about Jesus. And then just be quiet. And let them talk. And they better say he's co-creator with God. That he is without beginning and he is without end. They better say that he's the only begotten son. They need to say that he was born of a virgin. They need to say that he lived an absolutely perfect life. They need to say that his presence was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That all that he said and that he did was spoken by the prophets and a fulfillment of the Old Testament. They, they need to say that when he died, God did the act of salvation. There was something unique in the crucifixion and resurrection of this one rabbi named Jesus was the once and for all prophesied and forever fulfilled salvation for humankind, that those who look to the cross and say, Jesus is Lord, in fact, in suffering, he found his strength, and on the cross, he found his throne and in a crown of thorns he found his glory and that he arose bodily from the dead on the third day they taught the apostles again and after 40 days he ascended and is now seated at the right hand of the father and now we are in the last days waiting for his return as he comes back for his bride the church and he comes back this time bearing the sword not as a baby and he comes as a righteous judge for his church for he is the lamb who bears the scars victorious in glory that was slain they better say there's no need for a moon or a sun in heaven because he himself is the light just ask him just ask him what would you tell me
about Jesus. Let us pray. Oh God, help us to believe right, to love right, and to walk right. And may we love others even as you have loved us. Amen.